0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan, your co-host. I'm here with Emily Jane Fox. Hi. Hi, Emily.
1: We're, we're doing a little bit of an unusual recording. I, I quite literally have my daughter in my arms. She's a very exciting guest, obviously, but we have a more exciting, perhaps more informative guest this week. And I really want to hear about this interview. It feels timely and special and exciting. And I just want to hear what, what you have going on.
0: Well, this week and what we're about to hear is an interview that I did with Lucy Sunt critic, writer, uh, somebody that I've admired for a long time for books that she's written, like Low Life, a recent book called The Other Paris. You know, if you, like I did, came up uh, in New York in the 90s, there was nobody who didn't have a copy of Low Life sitting around because Mm -hmm. it's a book that is some of the source material for a movie like Scorsese's Gangs of New York. It was a historical peeling back of uh, the layers of downtown New York and the Bohemia and the gangs of late 19th century New York and gave you this feel for kind of the demomond of a previous era. And it was a fantastic read and it was written by Lucy Sant. In this February issue of Vanity Fair, she's written a beautiful essay about her transition to a woman. I have known Lucy for the last 10 years. And uh, in that time, I knew her as a different gender. And now I'm knowing her as a woman. And I wanted to talk to her about it and get to know her and talk to her about what she's been experiencing. And she talks about it in Vanity Fair. But now we've got her on the podcast.
1: Well, I'm so excited to hear this. I I thought her piece in Fanny Fair was fantastic, and I'm just so excited to hear the two of you talking as people who have known each other for a long time and expanding upon what she wrote. I have not heard your conversation, but I was mesmerized by the article, and I just feel like there's a lot to learn and a lot to talk about, and uh, because you guys have a history, it's even more interesting and nuanced, and I can't wait to get into it.
0: Let's dive right into it, and I just want to say right at the outset that I don't know how many people listening to this have friends who are trans, but getting to know somebody who's going through this or has been through it is like an education for all of us and that's what this is for me and uh in the spirit of empathy and trying to learn and uh also being a reporter that's where we're going with this conversation and i'm really excited for you guys to hear it let's get to it welcome back to inside the hive this is your co-host joe hagan this is a really special day for me, as I have as of my guest, somebody who is a friend of mine. And I'm very excited to have Lucy Sant here today. Author, critic, essayists, of whom I have been a fan much longer than I've actually known her, starting with the book Low Life. And um, years later, I got to know Lucy Sant through our mutual interest in culture and writing and music. So I'd like to welcome you, Lucy, to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. Yeah. Well, last year, you came out with a book, Maybe the People Would Be the Times. It's a collection of your writings. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are personal. It's autobiographical stuff about your life in New York in the late 70s and early 80s and your connections with different parts of the culture, clubs and music from hip-hop to sort of the CBGB's variety of Mm -hmm. of stuff, and you talk about pretty openly about relationships you had, and it was really kind of an insight for me, because from previous books, I never really fully had an idea of who you were. I thought of you as like an erudite researcher, a fabulous writer, and um, last year I get this email that says, hello, my name is Lucy Sant, right? and uh what you have known about me hence you know before now is not wasn't the total picture and since then you've written an essay for vanity fair about transitioning to a woman mhm tell me about first of all what was it like just to walk over here and see me for the first time since then
2: oh, that was awesome you know i mean Yesterday, February 15th, marks the one-year anniversary of my egg cracking. And um, it was pretty shaky at first, um, but between medically transitioning, which I started in May, coming out to more and more people, and finally doing my public coming out on Instagram in September, and I've been full-time Lucy since then... So walking down the street as Lucy is no longer a major thing for me. It's pretty ordinary. Yeah. Well,
0: that in itself is sort of must feel pretty incredible. What? Let's talk about that term, the egg. You talk about it in the essay mm-hmm. of Vanity Fair.
2: Well, an egg is someone who... It not fully consciously aware of the fact that they're transgender. I mean, they're different, you know, they're people who just absolutely do not know. I kind of knew, I mean, I kind of knew all my life, although I had such internal restraints that I wouldn't let myself assemble all the facts into one corral where I could look at them. I purposely, you know, purposely unconsciously kept these things apart because it was too frightening, too risky, too many dangers, too many strange things about my life that wouldn't wrap around it. Um, And so then um, when all this stuff had been bottled up for, and, you know, this is, we're talking 60 years maybe, uh, when it finally cracked, it was just this massive explosion. I mean, uh, just this the uh, the train of momentum still still sustains me even now um, because I mean I I know a lot of younger people I belong to a trans group therapy thing and um, you know a lot of people are nervous they're uncertain they go back and forth that didn't happen with me because it had been bottled up for so long and the evidence was so incontrovertible that you know I mean I I Oh, I had my self-doubts, you know, because that's just part of my nature. Self-doubt is (laughs) as much a part of me as anything. But about the fact that I was transgender, I had zero doubt. I mean, I knew it. Um, Once I was forced to put the pieces together, it was um, not something I could deny.
0: I remember I was just thinking about this the other day that the last time I saw you, and it's been a while and it's partly pandemic related, (laughs) as much as anything but the last time I saw you it was at uh Hannaford's the grocery store yeah that's right <laughs> that we both go to and I saw you in the aisle and I remember you it only made sense in retrospect but you said you'd had some kind of medical issue or something was happening and you but didn't want to talk about it <laughs> and that must
2: have been the spring of it last year it was in the spring
0: yeah and I've only rep- realized in retrospect that maybe you were just beginning your journey that's right, and uh, that must have been interesting for you, just even during the period when it was a secret, yeah, uh, because so much of it is like you're in the process of making a lot of decisions almost in private, right? you must have had maybe a your therapist was my your...
2: therapist was involved, and um, I came out to my partner immediately I came out to my son immediately and a bunch of old friends you know but and then you know I retracted everything about a month later you did Um, yeah but then I realized no it had to do with my relationship with my partner really that was the, the thing that caused me to try to walk it back but that would it didn't make any sense and it didn't work anyway yeah So
0: it was interesting because you opened up the piece in the magazine talking about one of the things that sort of helped break you open was this app on a new phone. You had gotten a new phone and you got this Face app. Yeah. And people familiar with some of these technologies will know about this, you know, like they'll allow you to become younger or older or change your gender and and play around with the filters on, on these things. And so you were doing that.
2: Yeah, I did that. I mean, I passed, you know, I took a selfie, passed it through, and um, I got a nice picture of someone who was female but kind of looked like me. And, um, and instead of what I would have done, what I would have done you know, any time previous to that and I don't really still know what exactly made the difference I did not delete it. Instead I went through photo albums. I went through all these... I found every single picture of myself that I could find, which is not that many past my childhood, um, actually. Um, but every single picture of myself that I had past the age of 12, I fed it into the machine. And um, and then I had this whole picture gallery of my entire life as a woman. and um, And that's when I realized... Yeah. I mean, that was me at 17. That was me at 27. That was me at 37. I mean, it's been consistent all through my life without a a hitch. I mean, I tried to bury it and all that, but it never went away. Not one day. Wow.
0: I mean, there's something heartbreaking about it.
2: Hmm. Oh, golly. I mean, when I think of, you know, the missed opportunities, the lost time. I mean, here I am. I am 67 years old. I mean, it's, I'm, you know, and I was really kind of feeling my, that I was on my way to the glue factory before this. Yeah. And,
0: well, you mentioned the idea of like selling your papers. To I a, did.
2: I sold my papers to the New York Public Library and that was definitely preparation for death. And you mentioned some,
0: Missed opportunities in particular, you had a therapist in the early 90s who you began to tiptoe into confessing some of your interests in dressing and putting dresses on or so forth. And this person, this was sort of shocking to me, this therapist dies of a massive heart attack like 20 minutes after you. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, you know, I mean, if he had lived, my life might have been very different. And it's also a footnote, I, you know, because this I find so, this so fascinating, even though it's kind of semi irrelevant. But um, this therapist, Paul Pavel, was also Art Spiegelman's, and he's a he was an Auschwitz survivor, and his character in Mouse 2, he was a towering figure. I mean, the, it's amazing how many people in art and literature circles in New York turn out to have seen him. Yeah, I mean, if he had lived, I have no doubt I would have transitioned maybe 25 years earlier than I did. Wow. Wow. To make the decision
0: to almost find a truth that you were not able to face or mm-hmm. accept uh, is sort of, as you describe, and in, in putting pictures of yourself even back to teenagerhood all the way through this filter to look at yourself through the years is almost like a radical reevaluation of your life.
2: That's right. I mean, everything gets passed through this lens, you know, everything. And there's so much that I could... I mean, you know, I I did spend months kind of... Well, I knew, I was certain, but I still had to establish proof, you know. I wasn't educated by the Jesuits for nothing. Um, and so, I mean, I'd review occasions in my life, pass, you know... Habits of behavior, what I was like when I was this age or that age. Yeah. I mean it's massive reevaluation. I can, you know, chart my life on another in another universe, you know. Yeah. What could have been
0: in 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 many instances. Well, you you are so um, vivid and candid in this essay in Vanity Fear about all the fears that you had about what would it mean. Yeah. I mean it's such so consequential to Your personal relationships, but also to who you're going to be in the world. You know, you talk about uh, transgender people were punchlines, figures of fun, the image was of someone in a shapeless polka dot dress with a bad wig and stubble. Tell me about that. Tell me about your knowledge of transgenderism, and you'd see the varieties of things. You're like, am I this? Am I that? How deep is
2: this? Right. I mean, and I was struck by the fact that all these people from the past apparently liked to dress up as showgirls. I mean, you know, they, um, they were catering to kind of male ideas of female beauty, and there was something deeply wrong about this, you know? And for me, I mean, I want to be a woman. I, I you know, wanted to be like, you know, I wanted to dress like the women I knew, not like some fantasy ideal, you know? So it was kind of disconcerting, and I couldn't see myself there. I mean, I knew that, yeah, I probably fit into that category, but in a way that I did not see represented. So it was a little alienating. Yeah. Well, you say, um,
0: I'm going to read a little segment that you wrote here. I wanted to be a woman, not a satire. And you said, I was mortally afraid of the very process I am now over... Undergoing, although I knew too little about it to be able to judge. When you started putting your face through the Face app and going through this, you're a known researcher of great reputation, and uh, you, you take that same power of observation and, and deep diving into a subject.
2: Did you do that with this? Oh totally! I yeah. mean, you know, one of the first things I did, well, in in my first month, was immediately send away for every every book I remembered leafing through in bookstores over the years, going back to when I was a teenager. I, I acquired them all, you know. Yeah, and uh, and I'm still on that track because I'm I'm writing a book, of course, you know. I naturally. was about to ask right. you, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> A tentative title, transubstantiation, which is Catholics will recognize that word. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a fascinating subject and so filled with weirdness and contradiction and uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Well, you mentioned in the uh, in your essay, Christine uh, Jorgensen. Yes. Right, and I just to you know be upfront with listeners and anybody listening to this. Um, You know, I know so very little about this, Mm -hmm. you know, the cliches and the kind of marginal Mm -hmm. pieces of information that the average person would get have come across my radar, but I know so little. And I'd never heard of Christine Jorgensen. I look up the Wikipedia page, go into this deep dive, and it's just like instantly an education in this, right? Who are some other figures who you've looked to as, what is the literature
2: of transgenderism, right? I should point out, by the way, uh, yeah, you're younger than me. But when I was a kid, I mean, Christine Jorgensen was still a f- was a figure in popular culture. I mean, everybody right. knew who, called- and there was only one of her, really, you know. And the literature, I mean, the literature goes back to at least Magnus Hirschfeld in in Germany around the turn of the 20th century. But um, but as far as the literature that I was really aware of through popular culture, etc., begins with Jan Morris, yes. formerly James Morris, who ascended Mount Everest um, and transitioned in the late 60s. And then Wendy Carlos, who made switched on Bach as Walter Carlos. You know, there, was, there were those people, and they seemed to be really really anomalous I mean like there were only like four or five of these people in the world you know at the same time I mean I I moved to New York City in 1972 and there was still you know quite a lot of uh trans culture visible of various kinds you know I mean the Village Voice regularly reported on the activities of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera uh, and the street transvestites action resistance, you know, stuff I, I, I knew about without really under... What is this? I didn't really quite completely understand. At the same time, I remember, you in uh, the late 70s, I lived uh, on the Upper West Side uh, on Broadway in an area where there were still a lot of single-room occupancy hotels. And there was a famous one near me on 99th Street and Broadway called the White Hall. And occasionally, you would see an entire duop group on the corner. They were all trans, and they sang five-part harmony beautifully. Wow. Yeah, it was, you know, the, see, there was that kind of weird disconnect. And then later, when I was living in the Lower East Side, I would go to Slugger Rands, which was this bar on 2nd Avenue, north of 12th Street, that was run by Jackie Curtis's grandmother. And very often, because she was very old at that point, Jackie would step in and tend bar, sometimes as a man, sometimes as a woman, and hold forth. And I was fascinated. I was too shy to speak to, to Jackie, but I heard her expound. You know, and, that, you know, and that and she represented this like outlaw breed of transgender, as opposed to the Jan Morris, Wendy Carlos, very well established. So, and, you know, I kind of had trouble situating myself between these two poles, you know, I mean, but then again, I thought, well, I've got this weird vice or, or fetish or something like that. And Mm. I'll, I'll get through it. You know, I mean, as soon as I'm in a good relationship, I, you know, it'll go away, but never did.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're writing about this and you're going to educate not only people who are not transgender, but, but transgender young people who may not be aware of the, of the history.
2: That's true. Yeah. And it's amazing how little, um, I mean, I talk to a lot of young people, and of course, some of them know history backwards and forwards, but some really do not know how impossible it was to come out. I mean, you know— Jan Morris and Wendy Carlos had the advantage of already being established, well-known, well-established in their professions by the time they came out, and other people simply had nothing left to lose. I mean, they were just on the fringes of society, and um, they were in a world where there were others like them. A lot of people couldn't come out for family reasons, employment reasons, and also because they were isolated. I mean, I still, I'm still pretty isolated, really. I don't know that many trans people even now, but um, but back then, imagine doing this in a vacuum. It must have taken just unbelievable courage. You know, everybody praises me for my courage, but it doesn't feel like it required any courage on my part.
0: And, you know, this is a such an interesting inflection point in the culture because mm-hmm. it's in the conversation, Yeah. you know, whether it's about bathrooms or comedians or there are politicians. We have trans politicians. I mean, that's like a huge development just mm-hmm. to have people in the public sphere who people need to see and see this is a person who is like every other person, you know, this is just a different, you know, way of being. Yeah. And um, You know, I have to say just from... My personal experience, uh, there's a picture of you on Instagram. I think it was sort of using the the sort of social media meme, uh how I'm gonna get it wrong, but uh how it's going, how no it was, how it was going and how it is going.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And there was a picture of you um in your previous uh, gender assignment and now you and you now and I and you're smiling mm-hmm. and your teeth a full teeth smile, right? Yeah. And I thought to myself, you know, I've never actually seen you smile before <laughs> with that level of smile.
2: I have, a f- I have a friend of 50 years who said the same thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it, was, uh, it made me realize that there was something really true about this. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you described yourself in the essay as like the identity you had, which was very reserved, owlish, you say, mm-hmm. and, you know, and maybe not quick
2: to be emotive right? Totally. Yeah. I was hiding. There's no question about it. I mean, I did not. It fully inhabit my body for all those years. And um, and I had all these weird strictures, like not smiling with my teeth. I think I must have recognized that That's actually, I mean, I know now, like if I'm thinking during those moments of dysphoria that one gets when one thinks oh, I'm an old man and Uh, in a wig you know well all I have to do is smile and I realized that probably all my life the most feminine I've looked is when I smile so that was probably what I was trying to stifle. Oh wow that makes sense and um,
0: you must feel a great deal of empathy for that person.
2: Oh yeah I mean you know I think about that a lot Um, the, the ambiguous relationship you know but of course I recognize that I'm still that person, you know. I mean, I'm not a different person. I've opened up. I mean, I'm I'm different in not just visually, but you know, in you know, I get told all the time. I mean, I'm so much more social now. Yeah. I um I would hide from social occasions. Yeah. Um, and now I run to them, um, because. I'm enjoying life in a way that was not available to me previously. Yeah. Um, but that person was so unhappy for so many years, um, and so crippled, really, so just in chains. Yeah. Yeah, you, you,
0: you describe that discomfort you felt, um, especially being around other heterosexual couples.
2: Yeah, well, that's still a problem. Um, yeah. That's still a problem because, um, I mean, besides society, my family, blah, 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 I think the maybe the biggest impediment to my recognizing this about myself was the fact that I love women. I still do. I always have. Not attracted to men. And it seemed impossible that women could accept this, They could, could go along with it. A, you know, I mean, I really thought women would be insulted by my presuming to declare myself this way. And then also there's the fact of being unattractive to women, which is yet another matter that I'm not ready to explore quite yet. It kind of gets to something that I've never... It's one of those questions I'm
0: not sure I would have had the courage to ask you, but about, like, what is the
2: relationship between sexuality and gender? Well, they're two different things, you know. And it's a common mistake, um, mm-hmm. and I know you're going to bring up Dave Chappelle. And I got to say, in that special, I thought that was the the one really serious mistake he made. But it's so common to confuse gender and sexuality; they are not the same thing, you know. Um, and I mean, the, the the whole argument there's well, there's there's gender and sexuality, and there's also gender and um, so we call it physical determination, you know, I mean, how your body is composed. Yeah, gender seems to um, lie outside the realm of anatomy. Um, and th- this is still poorly understood. I mean, there. you know, one thing I mentioned in the, in the piece um, is how few clinical studies there have ever been. It's r- drastically understudied field. Because there has not been the funding for it. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there equipped to do this research, but it just hasn't happened. So, you know, as a result, we're very much in the dark as to this, this fissure between sex and gender, um, which we as, as a species have come to think of it being one thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well that's been the education that so many of us have been having. Mm-hmm. You know, not just in not just with uh, adults with a new generation of younger people who kind of come out who feel liberated to explore the spectrum, yeah, you yeah. know, right in the in schools and in this whole, you know, even at the school uh, here in our locality here, uh, they have the Gay Straight Alliance. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Uh, which my kids are a part of, mm-hmm. and you know it's a it's interesting because we we live in a kind of semi rural area, but we have a college nearby but mm-hmm. uh, so there's a real mix demographically around here and class wise yeah but the gay straight alliance is sort of like um it's not just gay kids or even transgender kids mm-hmm. it's kids who also just understand this as a open community sure. Mm -hmm. One where they can talk to each other and it relates in some ways, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about, but to the kind of bohemia of downtown New York in the, you know, 60s and 70s. I mean, I know that you have been, and I don't know if you continue to, maybe not, but you were writing a biography of Lou Reed at one point um, or writing something about him.
2: It's evolved into a different book. (laughs)
0: I'll bet. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, But you've always been in that culture of, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the sort of the Warhol culture, the art world culture, the downtown world, which always had a, you know, gender fluidity as a core, you know, aspect of it, right? How does that relate or not relate
2: in your mind? Well, it's funny because there was this split. I mean, you have to realize that how quickly things have changed in a lot of ways that when I was in high school in the late 60s, early 70s, and I, you know, my first two and a half years of high school were at an all boys Jesuit high school in New York City. And I think a very large proportion of the students were gay, but nobody ever mentioned the word. Nobody said, I'm gay. You know, even though there were people doing... Beatrice Lilly impersonations in the cafeteria. Uh, it wasn't until I got to college that you know the, and that was seventy two. So it was a full three years after Stonewall that people, you know, I, I met you know two of my closest friends, both of whom said, "Hi, my name is X. I'm gay." And then, even then, though on the Columbia campus, there was um, there were gay dances, and I remember my friends. You know, accounting for, oh yeah, I went to the dance and I did, did this and did that. And there were these people there and there was this one pathetic drag queen as she, you know, I, I never met her. But, um, you know, that, there was one. There was one who came to these dances. So it was still pretty much, you know, I'd read in the voice about these radical trans people or, you know, look into the Warhol culture and see that, but I had no direct experience of it in my life, you know, not for years. And uh, and then later in the 70s, you know, I met people, I met women who were gender ambiguous before I met any men who were that way. And, you know, slowly, 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 it's sort of dawning on me that, you know, things are much more mixed up than the culture wants you to think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's
0: interesting because, you know, maybe some of the, what they used to call, you know, unisex of the seventies and the sixties and that, you know, that was, that cultural revolution was part of what at least opened up the cracks for different kinds of identities to start to explore. And it was probably all a little bit undefined and unrefined at the start. Right and nobody really knew how to treat it. And, you know, we've always had a part of the culture that is just like meathead world and is never gonna get it. But like uh, on the margins, you know, uh, the Dememond as they put it in the subhead of your Vanity Fair story, they're saying, you know, that you were a great documenter of it. Um, And, uh, but you know, now we're at this point where we're starting to put labels on things and try to define them more specifically and more accurately. And it's interesting what you say about the science or the study of yeah. that relationship, and us—we're we really in a—we're still in a world of un- unknowns.
2: Yes, we are. Yeah, yeah. And a, I mean, a lot more research needs to go into this, obviously. But um, I was thinking too about how um, my education over the past year has included the fact that I immediately went to partly because my age and my background immediately went into, you know, the binary. So I was male, now I'm female, but the deeper I get into it, the more I realize that ambiguity prevails. Well, my voice, I'm not changing it. I'm always going to sound like a guy, there's no two ways about it. But. If I start speaking in a falsetto, that just would not be me. And so I have to recognize that, you know, certain things about me are, you know, never going to just—I, I, you know, I'm not moving from, like, one shelf to another shelf. It's And and furthermore, I mean, although many things about me have changed, I mean, many things about my personality are just same old person, really, you know, I— um, I, I had this like little moment of um, of vertigo. And I know how I, I, where I meant to go with this, by the way, is just thinking like in more recent times, before my egg cracked, when I would read about transgender people, you know, people in the culture who had been one thing and became another thing. And if I thought about that, it made me... Vertigo was actually what happened. I mean, I would feel like I was dangling in space. I mean, it was terrifying. It was one thing to read about people in the court of Louis XV who went around as the opposite gender in, you know, in the 17th century. Uh, and another thing to think about the here and now and people who are artists, intellectuals, whatever, who transition. I mean, I that was the last thing I was ready to accept. Um because that just hit too close to home. But then, you know, in terms of um, the ambiguity, I've just gotten much more at ease with realizing, no, I mean, it's it's not a complete switch from A to B. It's like, you know, becoming a woman doesn't mean putting anything on. It means removing shit. It means getting rid of this male carapace that's enclosed me for so long. Mm-hmm. And it almost is almost a physical thing. I mean, I can feel I can feel my body kind of being liberated by not being clamped down by this. Um, but, you know, it's um, the process of liberation is also a process of liberation from this binary thinking. Yeah.
0: We live in such a, have grown up in you and I. In such a limited gendered world, when I think back just about my upbringing, and I'm sure yours as well, you know, the ideas of what you could be as a boy were pretty limited. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, young, cruel kids were quick to make fun of you if you made any gestures that looked Mm -hmm. even remotely gay or what they considered gay, Mm -hmm. right? You weren't able to kind of be, there were certain feminine things that were off limits to you, and it was, it squelched a lot of people, yeah, you know, yeah. and I, and I'm not transgender, I'm not gay, but, uh, you know, my attraction to the arts and to mm-hmm. bohemia, and it was partly as a, res- a resistance to, or rebellion against, hey, I don't want to be, feel like I can't do X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, and, but even beyond that, even in middle age, you know, there's a tendency to socialize ge- in a gendered way. Mm-hmm. women hang out with women and men with men, and there's like, um, you know, and, and some of it has to do with these sort of bottles that we pour ourselves into and decide that we can have these conversations that have to do with gender and somehow it makes us liberated, you know? But that's, it's in many ways, the opposite.
2: It's very funny, you know, because I, I, I've i thought all the time about how um, hanging out with groups of guys is something I haven't done, I mean, not since I was like 21. You know, I always made made felt extremely uneasy hanging out with groups of guys yeah. until I sort of hang out with you yeah. and the other guys listening to records. That was like the first exception to this in decades. Um, because I mean, there wasn't any of that male stuff really, you know. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. no talking bad about women and right. none of this kind of macho garbage. You but know? you mentioned this in your piece, and I just want to quote this because it was an
0: interesting moment for me uh-huh. reading it. He said, I hate sports and dick jokes and beer chugging and the way men talked about women. My idea of hell was an evening with a bunch of guys. So when I originally read that, I was like, <laughs> and I should, as an aside, tell people listening to this that uh, Lucy and I have been a part of a... You know, a group of music fans who hang out and listen to records mm-hmm. occasionally, and it's a lot of fun. But I was like, "Oh God, I hope, hope he was, you know, she wasn't." See, I just did it. Uh, wasn't uh, feeling uncomfortable the whole time around us. Were and then I think back on the things I was talking about. You know, was I was did I talk about women? Did I say something <laughs> obnoxious? You know, I hope not. And um, but uh, so I appreciate you saying. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's talk about that. I, I I made a little slip just now. Mm-hmm. And it was because I was thinking of the Lucy Sant I was hanging out with before. Sure, of course. And I, you know, uh, uh, there's this expression, dead naming, mm-hmm. right? Which means that you're referring to the name the person used to be. But um, it was interesting reading your Wikipedia page because it had been completely... I know. You know, converted.
2: That happened within an hour of my coming out on Instagram. I didn't do it. Somebody else jumped in.
0: Yeah, That's incredible. Well, and it's interesting because what happens is the person who has known you for many years, I've not known you as long as your oldest friends, but I've known you for maybe 10, uh, instantly having to, okay, I'm going to go back into my memory and switch, (laughs) the, you know, flip the switches all along these different, uh, so if I'm going to describe or tell about, you know, because the last time you and I sat around listening to records, you were not Lucy, or not called right. Lucy, let's put it that way, right? So it's interesting. It's an, it, For me, as a friend, and I'm sure a lot of your friends, it's like an interesting process of education.
2: Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because the person who misgenders me most consistently is actually my oldest trans friend. I mean, somebody I've known for over 40 years who transitioned a couple of years ago and is always calling me Luke always <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then you know apologizing and all that but it's yeah I mean I'm very relaxed about that kind of thing because you know I mean a dead name listen I understand completely a, a, an adolescent or even somebody in their 20s they want to get rid of that persona of the other gender that you know that they wore painfully for all those years and just make a new start in life but somebody like me, I mean, I lived for 66 years as this dude, and um, and it was painful and often horrible, but I also had a very full life, you know, I managed to write all these books. I fathered a child, I was married twice. I mean, you know, I'm not, I cannot deny this stuff, you know, right. I have to make friends with my dead name, you know. <laughs>
0: Just to that point, one thing that struck me immediately was like, you've come into a moment where you're finally able to be truthful with the world and to yourself about who you feel you are. And I wondered, you know, the idea of being an author like you and somebody who's written about themselves in print as well. And maybe people would be the times, this collection of essays, for instance, or The Other Paris, which you talk a little bit about your own background, you know.
2: And I wrote a whole book called The Factory of Facts, which is
0: a memoir that's not about me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which I, I have in the in the shelf in the house. But it made me wonder, do you look back on your work and feel like it's still of you, that it was as honest as it could be? Or how does it play into how you perceive the person who wrote them and the content of them even?
2: You know, I'm still that person. I don't really feel any contradiction. I mean, I recognize, especially The Factory of Facts is really the one case because there I know, why did I write this whole book that's a memoir, but it's all about, you know, it's as if I painted a portrait of myself that didn't include the details of the central figure. It was this kind of wobbly thing. And then the background is all in sharp detail. You know, and there's a reason for it. I wanted to write about nationality, culture, my immigration, uh, my family, about whom I knew very little before I started working on this. But on the other hand, I omit myself. And I know this is why. I mean, I know the decision to omit myself is because of this gender thing, even though I could not have, you know, I would have denied it, first of all, but I could not have articulated it at the time. But the rest of my work, I mean, I'm still that person. I mean, you know, there's nothing that I've written that I would denounce or even do differently now, I don't think. You know, the sensibility is not going to really change that much. It's more the day-to-day behavior, I mean, such as hiding from people, for example, Yeah. you know, but in terms of intellectual, artistic interests, that is consistent.
0: Yeah. Well, I wondered, like, if there was a aspect of your writing that could possibly change as a result of this. I mean, you were writing about it, obviously, but you maybe you'll approach it with the same kind of cool approach, the way you write, or or will you become more emotive in your writing because you feel more in touch with your, you know, yourself? I don't know.
2: Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, one of the first things my erstwhile partner said to me when I came out to her was, does this mean you're going to start writing fiction? But no, it's because I, no, I have, I have a problem with plot, with story, really. <laughs> so I'm not probably going to do that. And then another person I know said, you know, well your writing is so cold. And I think maybe now that you're a woman you're gonna write more warmly. And I gotta take major exception to that. Yeah, I good. mean I Talk never felt that. my I never felt like my writing was cold. But I think that this person, like many, um really, I mean, many people in the world think that being emotional in your writing means gushing all over the page. And that's, you know, that's nonsense because um, then all the reader can do is watch you emoting. You're not inviting the reader in. You're actually pushing the reader away and saying, look at my deep emotion from a distance. You know, whereas my writing is restrained. um, I mean, a little... Cold maybe could be characterized that I, way. I don't but think it's because, cold. Well, anyway, the, my, the point is that I want to invite the reader in to experience what I'm experiencing, not show them my reaction, if you know what I mean. Sure. So I don't think my re- writing is going to change all that much. Um, I mean, you know, it's hard to say, of course. Here I am. I mean, it's only been a year— um, and less than out for, really, the medical transition, et cetera. Who knows how things will change? Well, uh, let me just say that the piece that you wrote for Vanity Fair,
0: yeah. it still had the hallmarks of your beautiful writing. I mean, that's one thing I noticed right away, because uh, as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, my God, that was so fantastic and so beautiful. And your ability to write about um, all of this, you know, so both um, sensitively, but also not without humor— you know and and you did you know, and you, it's not political is one of the things that I thought was fascinating it's about it's not it. political it's not political oh. and it's well in 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 this way you you write in it uh you have this young trans friend mm-hmm. who uh maybe has been an ally in, in 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 conversation with you about this big time yeah most important person really in uh, the person's in their 20s right mm-hmm. yep And you said, she is as bored as I am of, quote, unquote, the discourse Mm -hmm. that afflicts the trans community is stifling rules of language. It's micro territoriality. It's insipid bromides. We realize we are flying into the unknown, that the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know. That gender is a concatenation of physical, mental, emotional and cultural factors we will never master because no one does. I I really was so fascinated with that because it's so honest um, without trying to kind of apply, you know, strictures onto something that, you know, hasn't been fully understood. Yeah. Um, And you also write, you go on to write how, um, you know, you're not really overly concerned with the pronoun Mm -hmm. usage and just, you know, why not?
2: Um. Well, there's part of me. I mean, I'm a writer, right? And being a writer, I think, involves resisting those aspects of the the language that are floating around that become cliches, the formulas that people reach for in lieu of thinking, in lieu of expressing themselves. And there's a whole lot of that. I mean, um, there's so much, I mean, you know, for example, one phrase that, I could not deny is I'm living my truth. This is absolutely, you know, 100% a rigorous description of the process for me. I'm living my truth. But, you know, that phrase is on the way to becoming meaningless because the way people use it, I mean, so much of this discourse is people throwing formulas at one another in lieu of coming to grips with something you know, and I mean I know all these things originate in academia, you Mm -hmm. know and academics, I mean it's part of their job, right? You come up with names for things and that's cool but once those names get imposed by a kind of invisible edict then they hinder more than they help and there's all kinds of that going on now and it's kind of depressing. You want people to think for themselves, want them to use the simplest language possible to des- describe complicated emotions and so on. And, um, you know, it's so much easier to reach for the plug-in, you know.
0: That's a good way of putting it. And and I think also, just like this conversation we're having here today, it can sometimes um, It's not inviting people into the conversation. It's often, you know, telling them what the conversation is on no uncertain terms before they've even entered the conversation. I
2: know. (laughs) I mean, you know, it reminds me of one of the most shocking responses I got to my various comings out was from a friend in California who's actually a therapist. And, um, and she was just overjoyed, blah, blah, blah. But then she said, you know, you look great in that picture. And I wonder if it's okay for a, a cis person to tell a trans person that. And I, Why the hell wouldn't it be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, what? <laughs> I know. But that's the sort of
0: um, a lot of people not knowing what the rules are supposed to be or thinking that the rules make a a big difference in how they talk about it and whether they talk about it just choose either not to talk about it or they're terrified to talk about it and i'll tell you just honestly me sitting here with you right now you know i was thinking oh this i'm gonna be like uh, philip Petit walking across the tightrope between two buildings and hoping not to blow it and i may have blown it you know but like i uh but that's you know, there's
2: that pressure that one feels. At the same time, I got to say, you know, since in the almost a year since I got that response from her, I've been thinking about this now. And then I realized that, you know, I, okay, so I post selfies on Instagram, which is, you know, I've posted maybe eight selfies, which is eight more selfies than I ever posted when I was <laughs> yeah. a guy. Yeah. Um, and um, sometimes I get responses from men and You look great, says Stanley Kowalski of Decatur, Illinois. And, you know, I get skeeved out. You know, there's something about the response of men that makes one think, you know, maybe there's something kind of prurient about this interest. Um, You know, so there is that. But... Well, that's once again the... This between gender and sexuality
0: and trying yeah. to, you know, can you separate them? And when you do, does everybody get it? Because really it's a social construct, partly our our ideas of one another. And mm. you're trying to both educate people on what it means and mm. then kind of feel your own way through it. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're really in a um, an incredibly complex journey, but also an incredibly exciting one. I mean, oh, yeah. You must, I mean, you're practicing. I mean, this is
2: better than going up in a SpaceX rocket, you know. I was about to say, it's like (laughs) you're an astronaut.
0: Um, You just uh, came back from California. Yes. And what were you doing out there?
2: I was working on a docuseries about the nightclubs of my youth. Whoa. Yeah. 1978 to 1985 interesting this is for television uh yeah it will eventually be sold to some streaming platform we haven't done that yet this is yeah. all preparatory
0: where were you in california
2: i was in oh oh yeah nice oh it's just amazing yeah yeah and you know i was it was a rescue. i was completely blissed out and i i surprised myself because usually when i travel i get to a new place first thing i want to do is explore and i was not Drawn to exploring. I just want to sit on my terrace and uh, absorb. You know, it's, it's, it's been a woo woo psychic power center since the Theosophists in the late 19th century. And I think they were onto something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you posted some pictures on Instagram. They were torturous for us out East to hmm. have to look at because they were so glowing and paradisical. But um, one thing I wanted to—you you posted an image on Instagram, and, and if, if people are interested, it's uh, L-U-X-A N-T-E. N-T-E, uh, L-U-X-A-N-T-E. L-U-X-A-N-T-E. Uh, that's the handle on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can follow Lucy Sunt. You had a picture of a, um, of a palm tree mm-hmm. kind of rising into the sky, and you wrote, um, I guess it's the relative sparseness of the Western landscape that makes trees much more knowable as individuals. They become characters. Only the rare eastern tree can do that. And when I read that, I was like, that's the Lucy I know who writes (laughs) something beautiful and observant like that. And um, thank you, Joe. And it made me feel a sense of like, well, things have changed, but things haven't really changed. Yeah. And, you know, you're the person that I admire so much in your writing. You're like a hero to me as a a writer. I, you know, I hope to write sentences as economical and erudite as you. And, um, you know, that's why I brought you on in the first place, because, uh, you know, you're a friend and uh, you're also somebody that I admire deeply. And, um, you know, what you're doing here uh, and what you're writing about and exploring in your next book It is indeed courageous. It's courageous. I mean, for you to be yourself and then go out on the streets and be yourself and explore and what it means to be you is like a, it's a heroic thing.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I mean, as I said before, it really doesn't feel like it requires any courage at all. And it's very surprising because in the early days or, you know, if I ever which I did sometimes in my former life, imagine what it might be like if I transitioned. I mean, I did have those thoughts now and again, and I imagined myself being very uncomfortable, sidling around, hiding, hiding my face, you know, um, wearing clothes that didn't quite fit me, all all this kind of stuff, and and none of that happened. Um, And weirdly, rather than sidling along the walls and hiding myself I did just the opposite I mean I just marched into every situation as I was born to it and just remarkable feeling of liberation like suddenly discovering I can fly and by golly I'm gonna fly you know um I mean, okay. So my voice—the the disjunction between my physical appearance and my voice—is such that I might get a little nervous in, you know, certain gas stations. Um, yeah. You know, and that's why God made COVID masks. I mean, it's, it's you know, really, <laughs> it's been a very, very convenient time to come out. Yeah. Um, but you know, for the rest of it, I mean, in. You know if i'm in new york city or los angeles or san francisco i mean especially those places i just march down the street go into stores use my normal voice i mean it's no it, it just is not a challenge i'm rather proud of it. i mean i'm I'm strutting really
0: yeah Wow. well i'm so thrilled for you and uh it feels so great to be around you while i can just see so plainly and palpably what a great mood you're in, (laughs) you know, and that's...
2: I know, it's amazing, huh?
0: And that's a nice thing. After being
2: gloomy Gus for all these years. Yeah,
0: well, I'm glad to know this side of you. And (laughs) um, are there plans to
2: reissue your books with Lucy on them? Well, it depends on the publisher, right? Um, And the big houses would probably find that difficult. I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, I think they'd have to sell out their current stock before they go back to press, etc. Or my two essay collections, I have three books actually put out by Verse Chorus Press and my friend Steve, who is in Hamburg these days, um, he's already reissued um, uh, my first essay collection, Kill All Your Darlings, Mm -hmm. as by Lucy. And once the current printing of Maybe the people would be the times runs out. That's going to be come out as by Lucy as well. Fantastic. Well, that's exciting, and
0: uh, was all just a way for me to say uh, for people listening, they should uh, rush out and <laughs> if you don't already own books by Lucy Sant, it, it's a good as time as any to
2: discover and rediscover. And later this year, actually, my, my first book, which is pu- being published as by Lucy Sant, is coming out. It's. Although uh, I think it people will be weirded out but you know, that this is the first book and it turns out to be a book about the reservoir system in New York City, which is actually a local issue because I'd like to write about the places where I live. And this is writing about Ulster and Delaware counties, New York, you know? Wow. Um, so it's not, it's going to appeal to a lot of people in those places, but maybe not so much to people who are interested in uh, what it means to be a transgender writer. I don't think there'll be much connection there for people. But yeah. what do you want? Well, that's
0: kind of um, wonderful. <laughs> uh, because it really, uh, you know, drives home that this is about Lucy Sant, the writer, and not uh, anything else, right? Yeah. And that's this is who you are as the person who can make these observations and take us into worlds that we might not have known about and show us all the layers. Lucy, thank you so much for coming on to Inside the Hive. It's been like total thrill to talk to you and see you again. It's been great, Joe. Thanks a lot. And that's our show this week. I want to thank Lucy Sant for coming on this program. So candid, so honest. Thanks to my producer, Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast happen. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, hit subscribe, come back next week. And in the meantime, support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. See you next week.